Well, please uh, have James chapter 2 open in front of you. Uh, My name's Andy. I am one of the few remaining men that have stayed here this weekend, as most of our men, I think, are uh, are walking in the Lake District, a noble pursuit. But some of us are here holding the fort together. So uh, let's, let's pray and commit our time to the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, as it uh, was read out to us, Lord, it, it should come with real convicting power, for it is your living word. And so we pray, Lord, that you would make your, your word live in our hearts, that you would challenge and convict us. Lord, there are, there are prejudices and uh, bits of judgmentalism that lurk in the recesses of our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that you would expose them by the light of your word this morning and help us to walk in in truth. Help us to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ and to reflect some part of his glory in the way we live in this world. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, our family love going to theme parks when you've got children. Um, that's, they're, they're a winner, aren't they? It's a whole day out contained in one place. Some of us in our family are into the more kind of white knuckle ride side of it, and some of us are more into the tea shops and donut side of it. But we always have a really great day out. So when we discovered that living on the west side of London, we were within easy reach of three three major theme parks, we decided at one point, to a brilliant idea, we'll invest in a season ticket. And I like getting a really good deal, so it's very satisfying to come into Legoland Windsor and know you've just saved nearly £200 on entrance fees. It's astronomical, isn't it? What I do not like about these theme parks, the fly, the, the fly in the ointment, as it were, is... Fast track, fast track. This is the system whereby you pay to go to the front of the queue. Oh, this bugs me. It really, really bugs me. For just an extra £90 per person, you can buy a pass that allows you to go through your own little entrance on a ride. Have a look at this picture. It is unbelievable. There's the entrance to the ride. And here's where the, uh, the normal people go in, right? And there's where the plebs go, there's where the plebs go in, right? Two entrances. Can you believe it? So after queuing for nearly two hours to get on a two-minute ride, it is very hard not to start to despise the family that comes waltzing down the line through their own little entrance and then jumps on right in front of you. And the difference between them and everyone else? Money. Money. If we're, if we're being truthful, apparently they have it to burn. And the thing is, this works on so many love levels that it upsets me because it's really not British, is it? It's, it? We are raised, I was raised to be entirely communist when it comes to cues. That's part of our DNA as British people. And of course, the other thing that bugs me is I know I'm a hypocrite uh, because if somebody handed me a fast track pass, I'd use it. Of course I would. Who wouldn't? But preferential treatment is a really ugly thing, isn't it? It's an ugly thing, preferential treatment, especially when it's tied to these sort of outward appearances and and things like we've had described in the passage we just read. It's one of the reasons that racism is so despicable, isn't it? 
It's one of the reasons that the book of Jonah is actually so shocking when we read it. We can barely comprehend what goes on in that book. Here's the prophet of God, God's spokesman on the earth, and yet he despises the citizens of Nineveh, so much so that he cannot even stand the thought that God might relent from sending calamity, judgment, from destroying them. Men, women, children, animals. That's the depth of his uh, favoritism, his prejudice. He only wants God to be merciful towards people like him. People with the right heritage, the right pedigree. Now, of course, when we see it in Jonah, we're appalled. But is there a chance that we ourselves have a bit of that spirit in our hearts? Is there a chance? Could we be accused of partiality or favoritism? Now, that's the issue that James is dealing with in the verses that we just read. And so before we take a look at them, let me briefly remind you where we've come from in the book of James. There have been a few of you that have been uh, missing from the series. Let me just, and I'm going to sum it up really in three pictures, because James is just so brilliant at pictures. The first picture that James shows us really is that of a wave being blown around in the ocean. That's the first picture. It's, a, it's the wave that's, that's moved around by everything around it. It's got no solidity, so it just goes wherever it likes. And James says, that's like us, if we allow the circumstances of our lives to control our lives, to control us, to control our hearts, to dictate whether we have joy or not. Rather than clinging to the anchor of Jesus, we become like waves. We're all over the place. The second picture that James shows us is that of a, is that of a wild flower. A beautiful wildflower. The sun rises up, scorches the flower, and its glory is gone. And he says that's like the rich man. Don't put your confidence, don't put your faith, don't take pride, he says, in the riches of life. They're fleeting. They're really unimportant, actually, in the grand scheme of things. Second picture, the third picture we looked at last week. James brings us to this man who's staring in a mirror. And he looks in the mirror and he sees his face. He sees all sorts of things going on there with his face. Then he walks away, says James, and immediately forgets everything he sees. James tells us that that mirror is like the word of God, which reveals all of our flaws. As we look at the perfection of God, we see all of the imperfections in us. And he says those words that we know so well from the book of James, don't we? Do not be just listeners to the word. Don't just be hearers only, but be doers also. You need to do it, not just hear it. No point coming here week after week and hearing a sermon or hearing the word of God read and then just walking away and forgetting about it. We must let the word of God change us. And we, we closed James chapter 1 speaking about the kind of religion that God accepts as pure and faultless. That's how James puts it. James highlights concern for the vulnerable and the poor. He says that the kind of religion God accepts is to look after widows and orphans, to take care of those who cannot fend for themselves. And, he says, it is keeping yourself from the pollution of the world. That's how we closed that first chapter. And so I hope you're going to see how that now links into what we've just looked at earlier. The essence of acceptable religion 
is the outworking of God's heart in our actions and in our thinking. In other words, we are to express the character of God in all of our interactions with the outside world. That's what God is looking for. And the plight of the vulnerable is an issue very close to God's heart. I hope you know that. My guess is that James had these verses from Deuteronomy chapter 10 in mind. If you're quick at flicking around your Bible, you can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. And in verse 17, we read this. Listen. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing amongst you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Isn't that just a wonderful summary of everything we just read at the beginning of James chapter 2? Saying exactly the same thing, isn't he? So you see the link? Now, we may look at those verses again later, but the sentiment that they express is not isolated either. You find that kind of statement all through the Old Testament. Those who oppress the widow and the fathers, about 40 times we get this, those who oppress them are rebuked. There's numerous laws, as you read through the law books, that express God's concern for the poor and the orphan and the widow and provide for them. God himself says that he will defend their cause, that he will watch over them. That's the heart of God. And so that is to be our hearts. James is challenging us on this. That is to be your heart and my heart also. James also says in the last line of chapter 1, and we mustn't forget this, we mustn't overlook it, that we should keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. We're not to allow the thinking of the world to pollute our minds. That's what I would suggest is going on there. Don't let the way that the world thinks about all these things pollute you and control the way that you think. You must, as James has already said, allow the word of God to to transform all of your thinking, to keep that kind of worldly thinking out. So care for the vulnerable and keep your thinking unpolluted, keep yourself unpolluted. And with that instruction then, having laid the background here, we get this first command in verse 1 of chapter 2. Have a look at it with me. James now instructs us. My brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? Apparently, the first part of that sentence, the description, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, is really complicated in the original language. I I read books that tell me it's complicated rather than look at it and think, wow, that's complicated. The renowned scholar Alec Matea informs us there are almost as many ways of understanding that expression as there are commentators on James. So in other words, nobody really lands anywhere with any uh, detail. But it, it, it turns out, as best I understand it, James is really doing something quite simple here. He is trying to draw our attention to the fact that Jesus expresses God's glory. However you want to read that sentence, that's the point. Jesus expresses the glory of God. When you look at all that Jesus says and all that Jesus does, what do you see? 
you see the glory of God on display for all the world to see. And that's, that's foundational. Jesus is the exact representation of God. God's express image in all its glory. That's what we see when we look at Jesus. Now, normally, you see, you'd never be able to see the glory of God, would you? It'd be too, if you know your Bibles well, it'd be too overwhelming for us. It's dangerous ground to look at the glory of God. Mere mortals such as ourselves, we're consumed by that. But there was one occasion when somebody got really close, really close. Do you remember that? Uh, You can look at it on page 92 of your Bibles if you want to look at it with me. Let me remind you of the encounter that Moses had back in Exodus chapter 33. This happens just shortly after the golden calf incident. Do you remember that? Where the people, because Moses had disappeared for a while up the mountain, decided to think, well, where's this Moses bloke gone? Uh, We'd better get on with worshipping God. Let's make one. And so they have, under Aaron's supervision, an image made of a golden calf for them to worship in place of God. And due to that incident, God declares that he is ready to walk away from the people. It's very strong language. Because of the grievousness of their sin, God says, I'm ready to walk away, Moses. But Moses intercedes. He pleads with God to keep his presence with the nation. Then he makes an interesting request. It's in verse 18. Then Moses said, now, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. It's an amazing story, isn't it? I mean, what must that have been like, that experience? It's something that I don't think Moses can even tell us, can he? But do you see how the essence of the glory of God is described in that passage there? It's seen in God's decision to show mercy and compassion. That's the glory of God. His decision to show mercy and compassion on whoever he pleases. Now, that that should blow us away more than it does. That's the glory of God. And it is, of course, most vividly seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you are probably worried we haven't got past verse 1 yet, but this is so important, isn't it? Mercy and compassion. That is, to take pity on, to be moved by the plight of the helpless and the disadvantaged. That's the glory of God. It's all tying together, really, isn't it, in James? And it's what Jesus is all about. It's the heart, actually, of what happened at the cross. At the cross, Jesus reached out and offered mercy to sinners such as you and I. He looked at helpless 
hopeless, debtors, rebels, people entrapped in our sin and held out forgiveness, restoration and eternal life to us. That's the glory of God to do that, isn't it? To have compassion and mercy on whom he will. I'm rubbing this in because it's key to understanding what James is saying here. The way that we act towards people in the world, people around us, ought to emulate, ought to mimic the character of God, the character so vividly seen in Jesus towards them. Do you hear that? That's a big demand, isn't it? Show no favoritism. Now it's looking like a pretty big thing, isn't it? And so James contrasts in the first part of chapter 2 here, treating people, and this is how we'll break it up this morning just very briefly, treating people the world's way contrasted with treating people the king's way or the royal way. That's the contrast we see in this chapter. Let me take you through it. First of all, we have the world's way. It's in verses 1 to 7. So James is saying that because we are genuine believers in Jesus Christ, in whom we have both seen and tasted the glory of God ourselves, we then are not to show favoritism towards people. And James illustrates it in verse 2. Have a look. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit at the floor by my feet, have you not shown favoritism? Here's these two men, do you see James describes them? They enter the building, and let's assume that you're on welcome duty at the door. Yeah, you see these two men coming in. The first comes, he comes looking really well turned out. He smells good. He's got a tailored suit. He's got a Rolex watch. He looks like a businessman. He's followed by another man who's obviously been sleeping rough. He's probably spent the last few nights on a park bench. His clothes are dirty. They're worn out. And he has a very interesting aroma. How are you going to treat them? How are you going to treat them? Will one of them get the fast-track treatment? Will they? Let me find you a seat. Oh, wait here. I'll, I'll, I'll introduce you to the pastor. I'll go get him. Would you like a cup of tea while you're waiting? Is the other one likely to get slightly ignored? God forbid, segregated in some way. Told to sit away from others. Made to stand at the back. Made to feel really unwelcome. <laughs> Let me just make this slightly more personal. What about, if so, what, if, what about if a man came wearing makeup? How would you respond? Walks in the door. You know, proclaiming for all to see his lifestyle choices. How are you going to respond to him? How will you treat him? It's really interesting to think through, isn't it? Now, of course, it may be, it may be nothing like that. It's more likely that it's going to be something a lot more subtle, isn't it? James is just giving us an, uh, an exaggerated example, and I've exaggerated it a bit further. But do you shower more attention on visitors who are more your kind of people? Is that what happens in your heart? Same age range, perhaps? Same interests? Same social background? 
same stage of life. They've got kids or they're single. Do you ignore those who are just harder, harder work to talk to? Do you, do you, do you sideline them somehow? And it's not just visitors either. It's a general principle. See, it can be a serious temptation as a pastor. I mean, we saw this and struggled with this many times, I think, in London and discussed it. Especially when you've planted a church and you're struggling to get the finances up and running, it's really hard not to lavish more attention or to give, to even to give more weight to the views of someone who comes to the church and might potentially be a more uh, generous financial contributor, shall we say. It's wrong, though, isn't it? The bottom line is this. James says, when we do these things, we are evaluating people according to the standards of the world. And we shouldn't be doing that. This world puts, of course, a higher value on the wealthy, on the good-looking, on the successful, on the intelligent. But we, brothers and sisters, you and I are not to do that. We must fight, resist that urge to do that. We must overcome our prejudices. James uses some pretty strong language in what comes next. Listen to it, verse 4. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, he continues. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. When we place value on people according to those kinds of things, we've allowed the pollution of the world to shape our thinking. And it makes us judges with evil thoughts. When we think this way, we ignore God's judgment about people, don't we? And we set ourselves up, actually, as judges in his place. We make our assessments count for more than his do. We decide on what people are worth rather than letting God dictate that. And that, says James, is wicked. It's wicked. Jesus was, of course, very different. Uh, we've just been going through the first half of the Gospel of Mark, haven't we? And you've seen that one of the scandals of Jesus' ministry was that he, he welcomed and attracted uh, people from, from different kinds of backgrounds. In fact, they were the people that wanted to be with Jesus because it was so obvious he had time for them. They were the kind of people the world would certainly not have considered respectable, not have considered valuable. Tax collectors, sinners, uneducated laborers, political activists. They're the people coming to Jesus in fact, those people made up, apparently, the vast majority of his followers. Very interesting, isn't it? Jesus said that it is very hard for a rich man to enter into God's kingdom. He constantly clashed with all the elite groups, you know, the people that everybody respected in Jewish society. And that seems to have been the continuing flavor, actually, in the early church. Paul writes to the believers in Corinth and says this, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. 
Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's powerful stuff, isn't it? In contrast, actually, the caricature that James paints of the rich in verses 6 and 7, and that's not isolated in this book, by the way. He has at least three major goes at rich people in this. It's not at all flattening, flattering even. Have a, have a look at uh, verses 6 and 7. Is it not, and this is a generalization, isn't it? Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Aren't they the exploiters? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? It's like a little mini portrait of the Apostle Paul, actually, isn't it? In those verses. The rich man. The respectable man. Arresting you. Throwing you into court. Slandering the name of the Lord. Now, this is not to say that rich people can't become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're not to understand it that way. James is, is trying to make a point by using some serious, strong ways of expressing things. Much like how Jesus uh, said, unless you hate your father, mother, brothers and sisters, uh, you, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus doesn't mean we're to hate our mother and father. He's making a powerful point, though, isn't he? About the way we should think about these things. James is doing the same thing here. The point is, is this. We must not treat people according to the standards of what the world values. There, there were many rich people, by the way, in the early church, weren't there? Zacchaeus, Joseph of Arimathea, who's described as rich, Lydia, the business lady in Philippi. But we must not assess people on that basis. Instead of judging people the world's way, Second point, the contrast. We are to treat people the royal way. James continues in verse 8. Take a look. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. He's told you how to do wrong, to judge people. This is how you do right. You keep the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the standard. James calls it the royal law because it's the law that belongs to the royal one. It's the king's law. Jesus actually summed up the whole of God's law in this way, didn't he? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the greatest commandments. Everything's fulfilled by those laws. See, essentially all of the moral law is contained in those two simple sentences, isn't it? Let me take the Ten Commandments as a summary. That's clearly what James has got in mind here as he quotes it later on. The first four of the Ten Commandments, only one God, no gods beside him, don't misuse the name of God and keep the Sabbath holy, take a rest day. That's what it looks like to love the Lord your God with all your being, isn't it? You've got to do those things. The last six, honour your parents, don't murder, don't commit adultery, no, no thieving, no lying, no coveting. Well, that's what it looks like to love your neighbour as yourself, doesn't it? Jesus illustrated it with the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
Such a powerful story, isn't it? Here's a man, think about that story. I hope you know it well. It's a man who gives no thought to where the man he finds comes from. He's found him by the side of the road. He gives no thought about where he comes from or whether he's rich or poor. There's no way he can know that. He simply sees a man stripped and beaten by the side of the road. He sees a man in need of mercy. That's what he does. And so, at great personal expense, he takes care of him. And he gives this man the kind of treatment he would want for himself. Soothing, bandaging his wounds, putting him on his own donkey so he can ride, paying his, his, his ongoing board and lodgings so that care would be provided for him to, to fully recover. He gives him basically a hotel, a hospice with an open tab, pays all of his medical bills. He loves this man as he loves himself. The whole law is summed up by that with regards to others, isn't it? Love. And that is exactly how we are to welcome the stranger and how we are to care for each other. That's big, isn't it? Now, that's not to say that James is putting us back under the Old Testament law. It can read that way. But he clearly expects that the way we live should reflect the Ten Commandments, God's law. Look at, look at how he continues. It's very interesting. Verse 9. If you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. And that clearly matters. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. This is really important, isn't it? We need to think about how the law applies to us. The law of God, and James clearly has those Ten Commandments in mind because he quotes them in verse 11, has power to convict us. It's like that mirror we read about in the previous chapter, isn't it? That we can look at and it will show us, it will convict us and show us all of our flaws, won't it? It's much like uh, you know, a speed limit sign. You're happily driving along a country road at 40 miles an hour, pootling along, oblivious, and uh, you think everything's all right until suddenly you see the small 30 sign. Now, of course, the small one's the reminder, isn't it? Up until that point, you had no idea. You were just merrily going your way. And then it tells you, you've been in a 30 zone for some time, my boy. The law has just revealed that you are a lawbreaker. You're a speeder. You're a speeder. And more than that, actually, stronger than that, you're a lawbreaker. You're a breaker of the law. You're a lawless. Well, that's a bit strong, isn't it? You're a lawbreaker. That's how the law operates. And God's law is, is really a description of God's heart, isn't it? It's how, God, it's how God is. It's what God is like. If you keep the law of God in every part, you reflect the character of God. If you break just one part, you have ceased to reflect the character of God as you ought. See, the law of God... I think what James is saying is it's not like, you know, maybe you played Jenga, you know, with the wooden blocks. 
The law of God is not like a Jenga tower where you take one out and basically it's, it's there and it looks kind of all right. No, it's more like a pane of glass. You lob a stone at it and you might have just hit the middle bit, but the whole thing just goes, falls out. And therefore, we are to live, as verse 12 says, to speak and to act, as verse 12, as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. That's how we're to act. James is not saying, please hear this, that those laws are going to save anyone. He's not saying keeping those laws will save you. But as the New Testament consistently teaches, those who have been saved, who have, verse 1, believed in Jesus Christ, in whom they've seen the glory of God in salvation, they will freely desire to speak and to act in the way that the law describes, just like their heavenly father. Remember last week? Just like a chip off the old block, like father, like son. Indeed, the Bible describes those who belong to the new covenant people of God as having the law written on their hearts. It's exactly how their heart's beating. It's written in there, and it's working its way out in our lives. However, James finishes, let me just found up, with a word of caution. We must not be deceived like the man in the mirror in chapter, in chapter 1. We've contrasted the world's way with the royal way. And now we just need to finish up by considering our way. What's our way like? This is just James sticking the knife in a little bit more to finish us up. We are deceived, you see. If we read God's word and realize that the thinking and the standards of the world have actually polluted us. We see that as we read it through it. And we realize... To realize we are denying the gospel by the way we treat people, by our little prejudices and favoritisms, we're deceiving ourselves if we then, having seen that, just walk away from the mirror and do nothing to correct what we've seen. James says in verse 13, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What James is saying here, I think, is vividly illustrated by another story that Jesus told. You know the story? He told a story of a servant who owed a vast debt to a great king. A debt that he had no chance of repaying. Actually, when you look at the figures, it's like a national debt, size debt. No one individual could possibly go there. But the servant pleaded with the king, and the king was unbelievably merciful, outrageous. He took pity and cancelled the entire debt, wiped out. It's an amazing story, and it's a picture of us. If you and I plead our helplessness before God, realising the size of our debt, he will have mercy and cancel every last bit of it. But the story doesn't end there. This servant, as he's leaving the palace, I guess, sees another fellow servant who owes him, well, a reasonable sum of money, actually, a substantial amount. This servant pleads with him for patience. But rather than acting like his king has just acted, 
This man throws the full weight of the law against his fellow man. He has him imprisoned until the debt should be paid in full. When the king gets wind of what happens, he is furious and he summons this wicked servant. Jesus says this, Then the master called the servant in, You wicked servant, he said. I've cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. It's powerful, isn't it? Here then is the motivation that should powerfully move our hearts as we interact with those in the world uh, that the world might judge as worthless. As those who have been shown the mercy of God ourselves, we should in turn show mercy to all. If we do not, if we judge and discriminate against others, we deny the very gospel we claim to have believed, and therefore we should have no expectation that mercy will be shown to us. The bottom line, the evidence that you have yourself truly understood and grasped the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ will be seen in the mercy, in indeed the love, the compassion that you show to others. Now, James is going to pick up on that big time in the next half of this chapter. But you've got to get into this way of how James is thinking here. It's an indicator, isn't it? If you can just show, if you can be challenged on this and still just have all of those judgmental prejudices and favoritisms in your heart, have you understood the gospel? Has it sunk in? What are you trusting? 